Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Money isn't everything, but it sure beats what's in second place. Most of you probably heard that statement, and I don't know, there may be even some of you that live by that statement. With the economic crisis that's going on in the world today, it seems like everybody is concentrating more than ever on money. And all of us in some way are affected by what's happening economically in America. The church is being impacted. So we think about our decrease in tithes and offerings. Many of our missionaries that we support have reported to us that contributions to their ministries are down. And so they're not able to do ministry in the same ways that they did them before. When we open this scripture that we're going to read today and we begin to read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the very first statement that he makes seems to say that we ought not to be interested in money. We ought not to be interested in money at all, but rather that it's better for us to be impoverished and it would be better if that we just gave up making money and all of us took vows of poverty. And this is the way that this first statement in Jesus' sermon is often misinterpreted. But I want to show you today that that's not really what Jesus had in mind. And when the Bible speaks about poverty, it's not speaking about material wealth. Jesus has a much higher principle in mind. So what is this statement that Jesus makes? Well, let's stand, if you would, please. We're going to read God's Word. Just three verses today, beginning in verse number 1 of Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain... And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this great sermon today, speaking of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as we spend many, many weeks studying this, Lord, may you open our eyes to the truth, and may we really see what it means to live in God's kingdom, to have a part of God's kingdom May we understand what it means to be a follower, disciple of Jesus Christ and the commitment that needs to be made, how we ought to look at ourselves and how we are to look at you. So bless this message today. Help us as we understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now today we begin our study of the greatest sermon that was ever preached. Last week I gave you an introduction to the sermon, and I told you then that there are many different concerns about this sermon, about who it was actually intended for. I'm not going to go into that again today, except to say that Jesus was preaching to a multitude. He went up on the mountain, he began to speak, there was a multitude that was there, but Jesus intended this for only those who trusted in him. The principles that we learn in this sermon uh, can't be implemented by those who don't know Jesus Christ as the Savior. The demands here that we find are are too high for us to live unless we are supernaturally enabled, divinely aided by the Holy Spirit of God. As we go through the sermon, I, I will encourage those that are lost to believe in Jesus Christ, to put your faith in Him. I will encourage you to repent of your sins, to trust Jesus But as I do so, I want you to be aware that there is nobody but believers that can do what Jesus demands in this sermon. Now, the first part of this magnificent sermon begins with the word blessed. Nine times Jesus uses the word blessed. He says, blessed are. And then there follows a principle after that that will bring 
ultimate happiness to the believer. Uh, These are what we call the Beatitudes. And Beatitude simply means a state of blessing, a state of happiness, a state of bliss. But I don't want you to be confused by that word happiness because our idea of happiness is not the same as the Bible's idea interpretation of happiness. Happiness to us is something that's based on chance. In fact, our English word happiness actually comes from a word that means fortune. It's derived from fortune. And so that means that we're happy whenever circumstances fall out to our favor. It's to have good chance or to have good fortune. But that's not the Bible's idea of happiness. Happiness in Scripture and being blessed in Scripture is when we have this supernatural experience that our lives are right with God. It's when we know that that we have the favor of God because we are right in the center of His will. And that can only be experienced by a person who has a new nature. This is someone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, and because of that faith in Him, God has given a new nature in which His attitudes are changed, in which His outlook on things are different, And the Bible says that that is what really brings true happiness. Now, that's important for you to understand because as we go through the statements that Jesus makes, often they seem paradoxical. And that's because these things don't match up with our human understanding. It seems that Jesus has everything backwards, and it's the exact opposite of what he says, that what really ought to make us happy. And so as we read through this, we wonder how can mourning, how can meekness, how can persecution, how can poverty, how can those things make us happy? Now it doesn't make sense to us that anyone who uh, would follow Christ would find happiness in those kinds of things. But Jesus is teaching here that only a true believer can know this. And this is how we know that he's addressing not the multitudes and not every single person that he was speaking to, but he must be talking to people who are true followers, those who have really put their faith in him. So he's not talking to people in general. It's not as if Jesus is saying here, take these principles, apply them to your life, and no matter who you are, believer or unbeliever, Christian or Muslim, Buddhist or Hindu, skeptic or agnostic, doesn't matter. If you'll just put these principles into play, then you'll be a happy person. What Jesus is doing here actually is turning everything upside down because these are principles that do not match the world's kingdoms. These are principles of Christ's kingdom, and the standards are different, and the way to our happiness is different. I want you to understand that because you can't think this way. You can't live this way if you're not in tune with Jesus Christ and if you're not walking in the same direction that he's going. Now, the larger principle that we find in the Sermon on the Mount is that worldly advantages are really often barriers to our happiness. What we think will make us happy many times is the fuel that fires our lust and our greed. When TV preachers talk about health and prosperity and about worldly gain, when they say that that is what Jesus purchased for us in the atonement, they're preaching the exact opposite of Jesus' real teachings. If we focus on those things and we pursue those kinds of things as our God-given inherent right, and that's what we keep our minds on, then we will not be able to achieve what Jesus says here, and we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so we ought not to think that what we read in the Sermon on the Mount is the way that some Christians are to live, that this is for extraordinary Christians, and I really don't need to concern myself with this because this just simply is not normal Christian living. 
And so you can't say, this is not for me. I mean, you're dead wrong if that's the way that you think. And so you can't look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, I like Beatitude number two, and I like Beatitude number three. I don't care so much for number one and number five. Every one of these things that we read in the Sermon on the Mount are for every single Christian that's in this room today. Now, I think we're ready then with that understanding that we can tackle this first beatitude, which I call the bankrupt beatitude. And you'll understand why I say that in the next few minutes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Probably the most popular interpretation of that statement is that the way to blessing is that we would become materially poor. Roman Catholicism has taught that for centuries. And so there are people that live under that system that think that taking a vow of poverty, that is the way that I could actually become holy with God. And it might be that material wealth can be a distraction from spiritual things. Uh, Things of this world, material goods, do bring with them a lot of temptation for us. But if that's what Jesus meant, if he was talking about material wealth in this passage, then he would contradict many of the things that are said throughout the Bible. And in fact, Jesus would come into conflict with some of the things that he said right here in his very own sermon. A few minutes ago, I talked about missionaries and how they're having a tough time financially and their support is dropping off. Well, can you imagine that if it was Jesus' intentions that all Christians should divest themselves of their wealth, that we would all try to be financially destitute? Could you imagine what thinking like that, and if Jesus was teaching that, what that would do to missions? I mean, how can we carry on God's work if we don't have the tithes and offerings? How can we give something if we actually have nothing to give? Now, I think about those poor saints that were in Jerusalem at the time of the Apostle Paul. If you remember that those Christians were under a lot of stress financially. They were under persecution. They were social outcasts. And so Paul instructed the church at Corinth and also the churches at Galatia that they should take an offering for the poor saints that were at Jerusalem. And then Paul would take that offering to them. Now, if Jesus had been teaching here that we ought to be materially poor and we ought to seek poverty in that way, then Paul would not have taken an offering. The people in Corinth would not have had an offering to give. And these saints at Jerusalem, they don't need money because if they're poor, if they're in poverty, then that is exactly where God intends for them to be. Well, we know that's not true from reading the Scripture. Jesus can't be speaking here of material wealth. And further, the word poor here is not poor as in having something but not having enough. You know, we often speak about the poor that are in America. And we say, well, if you make only so much money, you can make up to this amount of money. And if you don't reach this particular level, then you are living under the poverty line. And so then we're talking about people that may be poor, but they have something. They do have something. That's not what the word means here in this scripture. The word here means destitute. This means to be poor like a beggar. It means that you have nothing at all. It means that you have no means of support. It means that you're completely dependent upon the help of others. And materially, Jesus wasn't even that poor. I mean, the Bible does say that he had no place to call his own. There was no place that Jesus could lay his head, but the Bible never does say anywhere that Jesus begged for food. Jesus was not a beggar. None of the disciples were beggars either. 
Now, they did accept uh, some form of poverty because they decided to follow Christ. That took them away from jobs. It took them away from successful things as we think the world gives. But they weren't beggarly poor. The disciples had what they needed. And these disciples, even the Apostle Paul, the great missionary, worked to support himself. He was a tent maker. And that's how he supported himself as a missionary. So there's not one of them that was begging poor. Not even Jesus was begging poor. But that is exactly what the word means here in the scripture. It means to be beggarly poor. It means to be without any support of any kind. Now that helps us to get the right meaning of the statement then. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean then to be poor in spirit? Well everything I've said so far is just an introduction. Now we can get to the real meaning of Jesus' statement. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What we're really talking about here is the sin of pride. And the opposite of pride is humility. To be poor in spirit is to be a humble person. Let's describe that today. Number one in your outline is the requirements of humility. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you are absolutely nothing without God. If you don't have Jesus, you are, you are helpless, you are destitute. The Bible teaches that you are devoid of any spiritual good. It doesn't matter if you have a big bank account. It doesn't matter if you have a degree from Harvard. It doesn't matter if you climb the social scale and all of your neighbors envy you because of what you have. Spiritually, the Bible teaches that we have nothing that will commend us to God. So God's not impressed with anything that we have. We already know God's rich beyond measure. The Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so there's nothing that we own that's going to impress God. God's not impressed with your education. I said, you may have an education from Harvard. That doesn't impress God. God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. The Scripture says that, that the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. So that's not going to impress him. The Bible also says that he's the king of kings and he's the lord of lords. And so that means that your social standing doesn't mean anything to him. In his eyes, you're nothing but the lowest serf. So in the physical realm, we can say then that we have nothing that that really commends us to God physically. But spiritually, that's true also. And our spiritual condition is even worse. How is it worse? Well, the Bible says that we're dead in trespasses and sin. The Bible says you are deceitfully wicked... It teaches that your heart is as black as hell itself. The Bible says that you are unrighteous, you are totally depraved, and the only thing that counts in God's world, in God's kingdom, is perfect righteousness. Things that are dead don't have any value. When an executive of a large corporation dies, they don't keep paying him. Unless he works for AIG, they might do it then. A dead person, uh, an executive like that, he has no value to his company. Cowboys don't sit on dead horses. You don't keep a dead watchdog. And that's because things that are dead have no value. And that's what the Bible says that we are. In God's sight, we are spiritually dead. And so that means that we have no value to him. Now, that's not what you're going to hear in most churches. The perfect setup for the preacher in most churches is to tell you just how valuable that you really are. Preachers are well-liked when they, when they start to stroke the congregation and they pour niceties on them. Today's preaching is all about self-esteem, how God wants you to think well of yourself, 
how that God wants you to take pride in all of your accomplishments. But I'm telling here, you here that Jesus says you have to forsake all of that. And you might not like me for telling you the truth about it, but you have no self-worth. You have no pride that God is going to look at. It's not in who you are. It's not what you have accomplished. When it comes to how you feel about yourself and all of the good deeds that you've done, when it comes to your best efforts to be righteous with God, the Bible says that all of that counts for nothing. You're beggarly poor. You're spiritually bankrupt. You're destitute. And until you realize that you are completely helpless, that you have no chance, that you have no way to be right with God on your own, you will not be blessed You will not be happy in God's kingdom because you won't be in God's kingdom until you realize that. Now, do you see why all that's paradoxical? It is because we're prideful people. We like to toot our horn. We like to talk about us. In every conversation that we have with someone else, we're always thinking, that's enough about you, let's talk some more about me. Pride has no place in Christ's kingdom. So what Jesus does then, he puts humility at the very top of this list. You cannot come into Christ's kingdom and be in competition with him. You're nothing, and he's everything. And until you realize it, you won't be happy as a Christian. So humility comes first. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what Proverbs 16, 18 says. So Christ does not want you to fall. So the very first thing he does in the very beginning of the sermon, he he eliminates pride. And he teaches us that we are to be humble people. So how do you become humble? Well, let's start with this. Four ways that you can become humble. First of all, I must be empty in order to be filled. I can't be full of Christ and be full of me. If I have a glass of water sitting here today and it's filled all the way to the top, how am I going to get more into that glass? How would I take some other substance, what orange juice, whatever it might be, how am I going to pour it into that glass? It can't be done because the glass is full. And this is the same thing as it is in Christ's kingdom with our righteousness, with our goodness. We cannot be full of ourselves and be full of Christ at the same time. Now, if you go to the Christian bookstore this week, I promise you that you'll be able to find there a lot of books on self-help. you find a lot of things there about how you can assert yourself You'll find books about how you can claim your rights, what's rightfully owed to you. You'll have a very famous book there that tells you how you can be a better you. But how many of those books that are in the bookstore that tell you the best way to help yourself is to get rid of yourself? How many books are written like that? I think you'll be hard-pressed to find one. You're not going to find many books in the bookstore that talk about self-denial. You'll find all kinds of books that, talks about, that, talk, that, that talk about self-indulgence, but you're not going to find very many that talk about self-denial. And so this is what this beatitude demands. You have to start with refusing self. You have to be selfless and not self-more. And so the key to this beatitude is that you must be bankrupt of yourself. You must be filled with Jesus Christ and not with you. Now the second thing, to make us humble people, is that I must stoop in order to stand. You know, sometimes I'm glad that I'm short. Someone has said that the door to Christ's kingdom is low. You can't stand tall and go through the king's gate. That means that people like Jim Andrews and Corey back there, you're going to have a hard time getting into heaven. I think I'm just about the right height. 
But the truth of it is for all of us, every one of us, we have to stoop in order to get into God's kingdom. When we were in Israel last year, uh, we visited the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And when you approach this church, there's a huge plaza right in front of the church, an impressive plaza. But the way that you get into the church is not very impressive at all. Because all there is there is a very small door, and you actually have to stoop down. Even somebody like me, I had to stoop down, had to stoop down in order to get through that door. Now, there's a reason that the church was made that way. It's because that when invaders, the Muslims, came into the territory, one of the things that they would do is they would ride their horses into the churches. And so they'd come through the front doors of the church, and they'd ride that horse in there, and they'd tear everything up. And so to prevent that, they started making the doors really small so that a rider would have to get off of his horse, get down on the ground, and then even stoop to get into the church. You couldn't ride into the church. You know, I I thought about that, and I saw a great application in that. You ever heard of people that ride their high horse? You ever heard that? That's an expression of pride. And there are a lot of Christians, I think, that are riding high horses. And there's something that Arthur Pink said that I thought really showed some true humility. Arthur Pink was just a brilliant theologian. But did you know that he refused to be called Dr. Pink? He thought that that title was prideful. You know, I was talking to a a friend of mine a couple of years ago, and he was telling me about a a Bible conference that he went to. And he said, every person that I met there came up to me and introduced himself as Dr. So-and-so. Just about everybody in the whole place was a doctor. And he said, I sure wasn't afraid of getting sick. There were so many doctors that were there. You know, Jesus said something interesting about that kind of pride. He was speaking to the proud Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here's what he said in Matthew chapter 23. He said, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feast and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. And listen to this. And to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Did you know that the word rabbi in that context or in that sense means the same thing as we say doctor? Doctor so-and-so, doctor of theology, whatever. This is an indication of pride, and there's a lot of prideful preachers, and there's a lot of prideful pastors. And Jesus said here, there's only one who is your doctor, and that's Jesus Christ, and ye are all brethren. You know, something that we need to learn in ministry, I think there are many pastors that need to learn this, is that our church is not separated between clergy and laity. We are all brethren. And I would much rather be a co-laborer with you than I would to be your master. We're co-laborers for Jesus Christ. Now, the third thing that we need to do is that I must die in order to live. Is that a worldly concept? I don't think so. Billboards and advertisements speak about living it up. The beer commercials tell you that you only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto that you can get. We watch TV shows like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and we look at that and we say, man, that is really living. Did you know the Bible says that you can be dead while you live? There's two applications of that. A person without Christ is physically alive, But the Bible says that he's spiritually dead. 
But there's also an application that you can make to Christians, not that we're spiritually dead, but there's a sense in which we can be dead. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is talking about helping widows in the church, and he says that there are some of those that you just simply cannot help. And that's because there are some of them that are living for their self rather than living to God. They think about themselves all the time. And so he says this in 1 Timothy 5, verse 6, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And what he's talking about there is a Christian who is in a backslidden state. If I am going to have humility, I have to die to myself and live to God. And there's also a sense very clearly taught in the Word of God that in order to live unto God, we also have to live unto our brother. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now that's a paradox. I have to die in order to live? But this is exactly what Jesus says. He says if we're going to follow him, we must take up our cross daily. The cross is an instrument of death. And so when I say I'm going to follow Christ, it means I must die to myself. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's just hitting over the head, and the Scriptures are doing it over and over again, that in order to dwell happily in Christ's kingdom, I have to come to the place that I'm beggarly poor, that I realize that I'm bankrupt. Without Jesus Christ, I have nothing. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. So I can sum this point up with this. I must be poor in order to be rich. So the first beatitude is talking about spiritual poverty. Pride goes before destruction. And Jesus teaches here that humility goes before a blessing. Humility has to come first. And so if I want to count myself as rich, I can't add up all of the things that I have in this world, all the things that I've accumulated, not even myself. If I'm going to count myself as rich, it must be in what I own in Jesus Christ. I am rich and what's been laid up in heaven for me, not in what's on this earth. In the book of Revelation, there was a church that was horribly complacent, and it was a church that was despicable in Christ's eyes. It's the church at Laodicea. And if you remember in the book of Revelation that, that Jesus said, here is a church that says, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing. And he said, you don't even know that you're poor, you're wretched, you're blind, you're miserable, you're naked. There is a requirement in God's kingdom, in the heavenly kingdom, of humility. So Jesus puts that at the very top of the list. And until you get this right, until you back off of self and build up Christ, you're not ready to enter into Christ's kingdom. Now, I've given you then four ways that you can be humble. Now I want to show you how you can recognize that you are. Number two is the recognition of humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave a great illustration in his exposition on the Sermon on the Mount about a man named Uriah Heep. I want to read to you his comment. He says, I remember having to go to preach at a certain town. When I arrived on the Saturday evening, a man met me at the station and immediately asked for my bag. Indeed, he almost took it out of my hand by force. Then he talked to me like this. I am a deacon in the church where you are preaching tomorrow, he said, and then added... You know, I am a mere nobody, a very unimportant man, really. I do not count. 
I'm not a great man in the church. I'm just one of those men who carry the bag for the minister. Now, he was anxious to know that I should know what a humble man he was, how poor in spirit. Yet by his anxiety to make it known, he was denying the very thing he tried to establish. Uriah Heap, the man who thus, as it were, glories in his poverty of spirit and thereby proves he is not humble. It's an affection of something he obviously does not feel. You can't prove your humility by telling people that you're humble. You have to rec- they have to recognize it. And you need to recognize when you truly are. So how do we recognize when we're truly humble? Well, here's the first way. I don't complain no matter how hard it gets. What's the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody? In my mind, and I think in what the Bible teaches, the very worst thing that could happen to anybody is that a person would die and go to hell. I can't think of anything that's worse than that. There's nothing in this life that's worse than dying and spending eternity in hell. And yet every person who's born on this planet, the Bible says that, that you're going there. I mean, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted him, the Bible teaches that's where you're headed. You're on your way to hell. We're all sinners. We're all vile. That's what we've been preaching about in this, in this beatitude. We're all undeserving. And yet God in his mercy, he reached down... And he lifted us up out of that mire and that muck of sin. He lifted us up and he put our feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. I don't have to go to that place that I so richly deserve because God has saved me. So grace and mercy are all that I complain, uh, can, can claim. So what do, I ha- what do I have to complain about? I mean, is, is a bad economy something for me to complain about? Is bad health something that I should complain about? It doesn't mean I have to be happy with it or necessarily or that I have to like it, but am I going to complain about it? I mean, anything that happens to a child of God in this life is a step far above hell, isn't it? So what do I have to complain about? And if I suffer for Christ, am I to complain about that? You know, the Bible never says in any place that God desires to make me rich. It never says that in any place in the Bible. But it does say this. It's given on the behalf of Christ to suffer for him. It does say that. And so suffering is a badge of honor for Christ. He's given that to us. We suffer for him. So am I going to complain about suffering? No, a humble person is one who realizes where he was headed, and now he knows where he's going. And what does he do? He thanks God. He thanks God because now... Just as all of us that are saved here today, we can press towards the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We can do that now because we are saved, and we could not do that before when we were dead in trespasses and sin. Now I know that I'm alive unto God. And since I am alive unto God, now I can worship Him, I can praise Him, I have nothing to complain about Not even my faith can I brag about about because the Bible says that even that God gave me. So when people see that there are tough times in your life and you don't complain, that you keep on praising God, that you're not blaming God, that you're not disgusted with God, that you haven't turned your back on God, that's when they know that you're a humble person. You don't have to tell them that because it won't work. You can't tell them you're humble. The actions have to show that. Do you complain about things? And if you stop complaining, it's evidence that you're a humble person. Another way that we can show that we're humble or realize it is that I see the best in others, but I see the worst in me. 
Do you know what it means to be really humble? It means that when someone says something about you that you don't think it was quite right, that, that you don't think perhaps that it's directed to hurt you, and rather you step back and you say, I don't think that that's what that person really meant. They must be having a bad day. I can forgive them. They're a child of God. They, they, really, they really didn't have any bad intentions towards me. And the fact of the matter is, they might have had all or nothing but bad intentions towards you. But what you do is you step back and you prove that you're bigger than they are by being littler than they are. You bear the reproach and you do that without retaliation. And we'll get to that later in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, here's what you do. You turn the other cheek. I mean, you see in other people only their best, but you realize in yourself only the worst. And I'm not talking about berating yourself. I'm not speaking about beating yourself down until you get in depression. I mean that you say about yourself, if but for the grace of God, there go I. If it had not been the grace of God that reached down and saved me and that lifted me up, then I would be just like everybody else out there. I'd be trying to hurt other people as much as I could. It's only by the grace of God. And that's really the essence of the verse that I quoted earlier when Paul said, esteem others better than yourself. Now, there's a third way that we can show that we're humble, and that is I don't lower Christ's standards in order to raise mine. Now, did you know that's actually what the Pharisees did? You know, we talk all the time about how meticulous that the Pharisees were about keeping, about keeping laws. And when we say that, we don't mean that they were keeping God's laws, because if they were, they would have been righteous rather than unrighteous. What they were doing was keeping their own laws. And so they kept up a certain standard of law. And what they had done, they had invented all of these laws as sort of a hedge of protection around the commandments of God. So what they did was to invent this systems of laws that would tell you when you had kept God's law and when you were approaching a breach of God's law. Now let me give you an example of this. Let me illustrate it. You may remember um, last year when we were showing all those slides from Israel, I was talking to you about an elevator that there was in the hotel that we were in in Jerusalem. On Saturday, which was the Sabbath, on Saturday you could enter this elevator... And you would never have to touch a button on the elevator. It was going to stop on every single floor. doesn't make any difference. It's going to go to floor number one. The doors are going to open. And if nobody gets off, it doesn't matter. Floor number two, the doors open. Floor number three, if there's nobody standing there, it doesn't matter. It's going to stop on every single floor. Now, the principle behind that was, if you push the button on the elevator, that you're breaking the Sabbath. You're doing work. Now, that's exactly the idea that the New Testament Jews had. And this is just a carryover from that time. You see what that is? That is a law that you can keep. It's a law that you can keep. And so to protect the law, they actually lowered the standard because pressing buttons is something that you can do. Or not pressing buttons, that's something you can do. They lowered the standard of God's law. And that's what many Christians are guilty of. They set up a standard... For things like hair and for clothing and for a dozen other things, these are things that they can keep. And so if they keep those things, then they've obtained their holiness and their righteousness. Well, that's nothing but lowering the standard of God's law because God's law can't be kept any other way but supernaturally. Holiness is God's work. Sanctification is God's work. It's not man's work. 
So what am I saying that we do? Do we abandon all of the standards that there are of decency and morality? Well, certainly not. We wouldn't want to do that because that most definitely would be against God's law. Jesus never condemned the Pharisees for those nitpicky things about tithing. He never told them whether they could or they could not push buttons on elevators. But he did condemn them for their motives. The law was given to prove our unrighteousness, our unholiness, our ungodliness. It was not given to prove how godly that we are and how righteous that we are. It proves exactly the opposite. So we can't live by the standard because the standard is too high for us. And so what the Sermon on the Mount is pushing us ever towards this position that in order to be righteous with Christ or righteous with God, I must have Christ's righteousness. He must fulfill all righteousness for me. I can never get to that standard of law on my own. I must depend upon Jesus Christ. That's the whole meaning when we talk about being poor in spirit. We are bankrupt. Nothing to offer God. Nothing spiritually that he will accept. Only Christ's righteousness and God's amazing grace can save us. And so this is what we do when we're truly humble people, when we're poor in spirit. We stand back and we look at God's amazing grace. Now let me close then with this statement. The proud in spirit must become the poor in spirit in order to inherit God's kingdom. Jesus didn't preach this message to all people. He never expected that all people would ever be able to reach the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. This is for believers. Only believers can put themselves down and exalt Jesus Christ. It's not possible for someone who's not a believer. The, the proud person will always be a proud person until he is humbled, until he's humbled under the mighty hand of God. Now today, there might be someone here in the room that you don't know Christ, and I can help to identify you because you are the one who's thinking, I'm a pretty good person. I do some pretty good things. I'm always trying to do my best. And I would tell you that you are somebody that Jesus died to save because you are deceived. You bought into this devil's lie that human goodness is what it takes to be righteous with God. See, there is no such thing as human goodness. You may think that you're good and in your own eyes, your own estimation, you're good, but not in God's judgment. God's judgment says there is none righteous, no, not one. God's judgment says that you are a sinner condemned. And Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't come to condemn sinners, and I don't condemn sinners. The Bible says you are already condemned. And that's according to John chapter 3, verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so you have to believe today that Jesus Christ is the one who paid your sin debt to God. And that's the only way that you'll ever be rid of eternal punishment. Only the poor in spirit, those who are beggarly poor, those who are destitute, only those who are bankrupt and realize that bankruptcy are able, ever able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus means when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, there's an awesomeness, a majesty to the words of Jesus. These things are meant to put us right down into the dust where we understand that we have no hope, we have no help. There is nothing in us that will ever make us righteous with you. 
And so we flee to, we cling to the only thing that will help us, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ, the suffering Savior who died for sin and who has given us his righteousness by our faith in him. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who died to save us from sin. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would realize how truly spiritually bankrupt that they are and place all their hope and confidence in the one who can save, and that's Jesus. Blessing this invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.